This is the Hofstra Radio Alumni Audio Yearbook. Today is April 10th, 2022. Please tell us your name and the years you were at Hofstra Radio. John DiCepolo at Hofstra from 1992 through 1994. And uh, what shows or programs or departments did you work in while you were at Hofstra Radio? Um, I was the sports director there in 94. Um, I did, good Lord, this is going to be tough. We're racking the databanks here, 30 years now going back almost. Um, I did a rock and roll show on a Thursday night. Can't remember the name of it, unfortunately. Um, and I used, to, I used to also host the Jazz Cafe on Thursday afternoons. Um, and that was that was a regular shift that I had uh, from about 2 to 4 p.m. in the afternoon on Hofstra Radio. And other than that, it was mostly sports, uh, being the sports director there and getting my start there in the, uh, in the fall of 92 and then graduating in December of 94. Okay. Uh, so the only title that you held at the station was sports director? Sports director, yeah. I was a sports director in the fall of 1994 because I graduated in December of 94. Okay. Um, did you use your own name professionally on the air? Did you have any other nicknames? You said you did a jazz show and a rock show. Did you always go by John DiCepolo? I always went by John DiCepolo with the rock show and with uh, the radio broadcast for Hofstra Sports. The only other moniker or nickname that I used was with um, when I would do basketball broadcasts with John Lane, he would always introduce us as JL and JD. And that started to pick up some momentum and started to stick into my junior and senior year. So he was he would refer to us with those nicknames. Um, I never did myself, but he would refer to us. And every once in a while, I'd hear it in the, in the uh, WRHU uh, in the office. People would walk up to me, hey, JD, what's going on? So that's how it kind of came about. Okay. Okay. Fair enough. Um, so two part question here, uh, answer it whatever way it makes sense to you, but I'm always curious what brought people to Hofstra radio in the first place. And then when you got there, uh, what was it like if you could paint a picture of what the office or the studio looked like, or the people that you met your first time at WRHU? So the first time I heard about Hofstra Radio was when I was doing a campus tour, and I never actually got to see the radio station, but I heard a lot of good things about it. So when I arrived on campus in the fall of 92, I had heard about the radio station. I was trying to find the radio station. It was in the basement of some hall that I can't even remember the name of right now. But my earliest recollection was walking down this dark, dark corridor getting down to the WRHU offices. And the first person I met was John Lane. Uh, John was very instrumental in recruiting me to WRHU 88.7 FM. Um, he had suggested, you know, hey, you have a sports background. You like rock and roll. You should become a DJ. You should do sports with me. And that's really how I got my introduction into Hofstra Radio was through, was through a, a classmate of mine, John Lane. Okay. So it was Memorial Hall. And... Prior to going down there, I guess if if we could be a little bit more specific, what time of year was it? Were you were you a freshman? Were were you involved in other activities going on that brought you to the station? All right, so this would have been the fall of '92. Now you got to keep in mind, I was a transfer coming in as a junior. Now in 1992, I was playing football for the football team when Hofstra actually had a football team. That's no longer the case now. That's a separate argument. Let's not go down that rabbit hole just yet. Um, so it was the fall of 92. I was playing football and, um, I remember hearing about Jay Brayman who was doing broadcasts for us and following us on the road a lot. And then I bumped into John Lane. So this would have been about, um, October slash November of 1992. 
And it was interesting because John Lane had said to me, come down to the radio station, meet some people. And I did. Um, I don't remember Brian exactly when we met, but I remember meeting um, uh, Jen and I'm, I'm forgetting her last name now. Really beautiful girl, blonde hair. Um, Jen Murphy? Jen Murphy, yeah. R- super sweet person, by the way. Um, Jen Murphy, uh, I met yourself. I met John Lane. I met a couple of other people down there, Jay Brayman. And John Lane had said to me, hey, um, you know, they're always looking for backups, people that can fill in left and right on these radio broadcasts for basketball games. Would you be interested? And I'm thinking, yeah, what are you looking for? Like play-by-play? And they said, no, you know, a, more like a color role. And I said, okay, doing color commentary. Well, sure enough, two days later, uh, I get a phone call in my dorm room and John Lane says, hey, uh, Hofstra's on the road tonight down in Philly playing St. Joseph's. Do you want to do the broadcast? The guy that was supposed <laughs> to do color called in sick. Can't do it. You're up. So my first earliest recollection of WRHU was traveling on the road with John Lane, going down I-95, down to Philly to cover this game at St. Joseph's. Did the game. Hofstra lost, unfortunately. I think it was like 87-81, which is kind of ironic that I still remember that score. But that was my first introduction to Hofstra Radio. And I had so much fun doing it. Such a cool crew. And just the whole process of how the setup, the game, um, the work you got to put into it, understanding how the equipment works. To me, it was all very fascinating. And then, of course, to cap it off at 12 midnight, being with our sports information director, Jim Sheen, and getting a Philly cheesesteak before we came back home. Um, that was a real treat for me. That was really special. But that was my first introduction to Hofstra Radio. And from there, I was just hooked. Wow. So so you showed up at Memorial Hall in the basement, met a few of us, and a couple days later, you were on the air. Basically, yeah. I mean, it was really, for me, it was really a lot of luck, right place, right time. Someone called in sick. Hey, John, you know, I know you want to be on the air. This is your shot. Do you want to jump in? And I said, yeah, I'll, I jumped in with both feet. And that would that's really what got me involved in WREJU. And from there, things started to open up more. Um, there were some slots that were opening up for the Jazz Cafe. Um, I wasn't a particular huge jazz fan, but I just wanted to get on the air. And uh, Sue Zizza had mentioned to me, well, we have a spot open if you want to jump on it. It's every Thursday from 2 to 4. That can be your slot, slot if you want it. And I said, yeah, I'll take full advantage of it. So um, I jumped in with both feet. And then uh, later on, I think in 93 and 94, there was a rock show that uh, we had. I think it was called Alternative Rock from like 7 to 9 at night. And I can't remember, but I remember specifically you were not allowed to play current hits or past hits that were on the air. You could play certain artists, but you couldn't play hits that actually made like radio airplay. So you had to play other hits that they had or other songs that you found interesting. Um, and I just, it was a very unique environment. And I just remember being down inside that old, that old, uh, studio we had and being at the board and, and learning how to work everything. It was just, to me, it was just magical. So the program, the rock program probably would have been the rock and roll oasis. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. I could not think of the name of it. Yeah. We had the, we had airwave, which was on about 11 PM to 3 AM at the time and the oasis, depending on, on the exact time, I think we started was 8 p.m. to 11 p.m. And then at some point we expanded it to 7 to 11. But that's that's neither here nor there. I want to get back to to the questions and you starting there. Um, did you go through any training programs to learn how to announce on the air or to be an engineer? You know, I do remember going to get training and I do remember having to pass to get your, um, and I'm going to mess this up, your radio license to be able to mm-hmm. go on the air. So we had to, I had to go through all that. We had to learn the board and train on how, how, how to do that. Uh, as far as training to be a broadcaster, when I got to Hofstra in 1992, now you got to remember, this is before we moved out of Memorial Hall and into Dempster. There was no formalized training course. 
it was a lot of, you know, get thrown into the fire and learn as you go and get tips here and there. And you try and get some tips from some upperclassmen, um, especially from the sports broadcasting. But a lot of it was trial by fire. Let's let's see what you got. And back in, <laughs> sounds so old now, back in my day, mm-hmm. um, you know, you would put guys on the air and we, the expression was, let's find out if he can dance. And what that meant was, can he ad lib? Can he hold his own? Can he keep his cool or her cool on the air? During a situation like this, that's going to be very open. It's going to be very fluid. It's going to be very dynamic and changing very quickly. Now, that can be applied to either sports or the rock show or, um, you know, towards the end of my career there in the fall of 94, I used to work with Dave Koenig and Butch. I can't remember his last name. Um, D'Ambrosio. Maybe, yes. And we used to do a radio show in the morning. It was a morning show. Um, And that was also a lot of fun. But then again, that was also learning, okay, so to get up early in the morning and do this every single day and understand you know, what it's like, and I didn't do it every single day. I think I did it on Thursday mornings, um, but had again, had, just had so much fun doing that. It, working at a radio station offers you the ability to learn so much, not just about equipment, not just about other people, but really about yourself and what you're capable of inside and what you can do and what you can explore and the envelope you can push and so many different dynamics come into play. So you mentioned earlier before about getting your license, your FCC broadcasting license, third class. Um, so there, there were some sort of informal classes for engineering and announcing. Do you remember anything about those, about uh, maybe who you worked with or who was in your class or any good tips or advice you got? I don't have any memories of that, to tell you the truth. I couldn't tell you the process of what I went through. I can, we can discuss, you know, mentors that I had Um you know, down the road, uh, while I was there at the radio station, but not necessarily regarding classes. I don't remember that. I'm sorry. Oh, no, that's okay. That's, that's what, that's what this is about. We tend to jog the memory and, and see what comes out. Sometimes we, we remember things that we didn't know we remembered. So, there you go. um, so that first time on the air, let's get back to that. Cause yeah. that sounds like, like you said, like a, like a trial by fire there. So John Lane calls you up and says, we're going to Philly. We're going to go do a basketball game. So uh, normally I don't ask this, but this this seems like a unique story. How'd you guys get down to Philly? Who who were you with, and what were those feelings like getting set up and getting ready to go on the air? So we actually went down. I believe we went down with Jim Sheehan, who was at the time our sports information director. He said, "Listen, I'm going to drive down. If you guys want to ride with me, we can ride down." So we ride down to Philly. It's about two hours away. We get to the arena at St. Joseph's, and John Lane is explaining to me how we're setting up. Now. For some reason, I always thought radio broadcast guys would be up in the booth, you know, high above like the TV guys or something. I didn't realize, no, no, you're going to be on like radio row, like right on the front row of the court. And to me, I thought that was just the coolest thing because you got to see the game in a whole different dynamic. You got to see the expression on players' faces much closer. You could see the sweat. You could see that you could hear the trash talking sometimes. You could hear the coaching going on. And the coach of the time for us was Butch Van Bredekoff. So, um, you know, seeing these figures down there and being that close and being thrust into the fire and learning how the equipment gets set up ahead of time and all the cables and wires and preparation that has to go into it, it really made me take a step back and realize this is not like just sitting down, flipping a switch and going. There's a lot of preparation that has to go into this. Rosters, stats, storyline. So my first time on the air was when John Lane was introducing us uh, before we go in live. The starting lineups are going on and he's saying, you know, welcome to... Uh, the campus of St. Joseph's University, where tonight, you know, they're taking on the Hofstra Flying Dutchman at the time. And, you know, joining next to me is uh, John DiCepolo making his radio debut. And I was nervous 
But yet, once I got a first couple of words out of my mouth, I felt very, very comfortable. Um, and I just really let the game kind of dictate the pace and the flow of it. I really t- tried to let John take the lead because he had done this a couple of times. Um, he hadn't done a ton of games, but he'd done it more than I'd, I had ever done it. Um, so I let him kind of dictate the pace, but the whole experience was great. And um, it's it's funny because it seemed like it lasted five hours and it didn't. The game was probably maybe two hours total. And the next thing I know, we were packing the equipment up back in the car, going to get a Philly cheesesteak back on the turnpike and then back home to Hempstead. So when you say it felt like it was five hours in, in a good way, like you were having fun or yes. I, I can't no. believe this is. <laughs> no, in a, in a really good way, in a really good way. Five hours in a good way. Um, you know, being able to be descriptive with the action, really letting your imagination take control, trying to capture the essence of what's going on um, and realizing that you have to pay attention to a lot of stuff. It's no longer being a fan of just sitting back and kind of watching the game and being judgmental and you got to be careful what you say and what you don't say. You know, there's a time when you want to fill the time with your voice and there's another time you want to be quiet and let the play-by-play guy do it or just let the crowd's reaction tell the story. So um, it was it was, it was was five hours. It felt like five hours. But really what it was was the amount of energy and effort that you put into this, both from a physical standpoint of broadcasting your voice and a mental standpoint of understanding what's going on and assimilating all that information. It was a good feeling, but it was tiring and it was exhausting. But you felt accomplished when you were done. So that was a good thing. Hmm. So you were a football player prior to this. Did you have any basketball experience? Did you play? How how well versed nope. were you? When it comes to sports, I was always an athlete. I mean, growing up, I played soccer, football, basketball, hockey, baseball, lacrosse, golf, tennis, archery, swimming, gymnastics. I mean, I did it all. Um, never played basketball at the collegiate level, just at the high school level. So I had enough of a base knowledge of the game itself. But my forte, my, my real... Uh, craft or expertise came in the fall and in the spring with football and lacrosse. That was more my bread and butter because I was a football player at Hofstra. Played one year in the fall of 92. After that, decided to focus more on the academics and really thrust myself into WRHU and HTV there at Hofstra. So in terms of being a transfer, you said you were coming from another school. Was there something about the communications program at Hofstra that drew you there or were there other factors? No, that was exactly it. Um, I, I grew up uh, just outside of Boston in Needham, Mass. I had gone to Assumption College in Worcester for two years. Um, at the end of my sophomore year, I was a Division Three All-New England selection first team punter. And um, I knew I wanted to play at a higher level. And I had looked at transferring to a, a number of other Division One and Division One AA schools and for me, it came down to Boston University and Hofstra. And the reason why it came down to those two was because I was literally sitting on my bed in my dorm room my sophomore year. And I said, okay, what do I really want to do with my life? At the time, I was a business major. But I said, yeah, I don't see myself in business and accounting. That's just not me. It's not my style, not my personality. And at the time, I said to myself, what do I really love? I love music. I love the radio. Maybe I can go to school to become a DJ. That was the first initial thought. So when I started looking at schools... It came down to BU, which was in my backyard, or Hofstra. Um, it just so happened that BU was a situation where they were an established Division I AA football program. You were going to have to redshirt one year, meaning you don't play, and your eligibility gets pushed out for two more years. Whereas at Hofstra, they were in the transition of going from Division Three to Division I AA. So when I came down for my tour, I met with Joe Gardy at Margiata Hall, and he told my dad point blank, if John comes here, he'll have the ability to, to play and start right away if he wants to. Well, that was a huge draw. I mean, I walked on the Hofstra campus, fell in love with it, loved everything about it. 
Um, certainly got some ribbing from the guys on the football team in, in a good way because I was a Boston guy coming to a New York school and they were kind of like, how the heck did we wind up getting you? Mm-hmm. Um, but it was always a good thing. And that's when I first found out about uh, Hofstra Radio was on that tour, um, trying to learn more about it, learn more about HTV. And, uh, but it was a conscious choice that I made to come to Hofstra because of the broadcasting uh, reputation that it had established previously. And so when you came to Hofstra, you dropped the business major and became a communications major? Correct. Correct. I came in with a clean slate and said, okay, I'm going to try something different. I want to go with communications. um, And this is what I want to do. And really try to throw myself as much as I could into HTV and to uh, Hofstra radio. And were you taking uh, communications courses for credit that were part of the university? You took TV production courses, I assume? Yep. I took TV production courses. Yep. Took some radio courses, um, but it was mostly TV at the time. Um, I think the radio program, in many ways, I don't know if Hofstra realized what they had in the in the the golden nugget, if you will, they had there at Hofstra with the radio station. When I got there, they were in the basement of Memorial Hall. Um, it was kind of an afterthought, in my opinion. They didn't put enough emphasis on it. They didn't realize what they had there. In the years since. And, you know, I'm talking now 5, 10, 20, 30 years since, you can see how much it's grown to become, you know, a nationally recognized program. Um, you know, to me, if if you had to put the analogy and put a radio station into a top 25 and put Hofstra in that category, you know, from in my opinion, we'd be right up there with the Oklahomas, the Alabamas, the Notre Dames. I mean, bar none. Um, so, but there was a transition period I specifically remember going from Memorial Hall to Dempster, noticing the equipment upgrades, noticing the studio upgrades. And that's when the the light kind of went off in my head and went, oh, okay, this is going to be much bigger than we think, guys. This is not going to be some rinky-dink operation. Hmm. Um, When you arrived, I think timeline-wise, because we were there at the same time, um, I think that was after Jeff Krause passed. I don't think you would have met him. That's correct. And part of the process of doing this oral history and talking to lots of people who were there before you and I and, and, and previously is that Jeff had a vision for growing the station while at the same time keeping it somewhat under the radar of the university's prying eye. So, so you got to see a nice transition from the basement of Memorial Hall where we as students were like, well, why don't we have nicer stuff or why are we in the basement? Right. And then you go over to the next building, which I probably they'd started construction. I think about the time that you came over to the station. So then there's this gleaming new studio. Could you talk a little bit about the feeling of, of going from one environment to the other? So the old studio was old, and I mean old in the very classic sense. Um, old boards, old records, old lighting, old air conditioning and heating units. It just had that old feel, but it wasn't a bad feel. It was a pretty cool feel. It was just old. When you walked into the new building, now you got to remember, Dempster Hall was where Hofstra Television was, and they decided to bust through a wall and put the radio station right on the other side. So when you walked into Dempster now, you could continue down that hallway and walk right into the radio side. So that was really cool, you know, seeing the new construction, the brand new classrooms, the smell of the fresh carpet and paint that was put down, the new doorknobs. I mean, you don't think much about doorknobs and lighting and stuff, but you start realizing, looking around, oh, this is pretty cool. And what I noticed it, when it really hit me the hardest besides that, was it was week seven and we were home or home against Rhode Island or Towson State. 
we were doing the broadcast and Bruce Avery had purchased new equipment for the sports guys, specifically um, a receiver that was made for sports with real sports professional headsets. The old stuff we were using was really old and janky and kind of beat up. And we got to use the professional stuff. And that to me was the coolest thing in the world. It sounded better. It looked better. It was easier to set up. It was easier to patch in. Um, and just made the whole operation a lot easier. And that was the first moment that I went, oh, this is really cool. Okay. And I could start to see the direction of where they wanted to take the radio station to that next level, if you will. So I never personally went on the road with the sports department, but I know of the equipment that had to be dragged along. For those of you, for this is the old equipment that you're talking about. Right. Getting in someone's car or in a van <laughs> and driving, however, what... Can you tell us, can you describe what was that like? What were you dragging along with you? So you had to drag along with you three different boxes. And one of the boxes was, was like a hard, today, nowadays, they might call it a Pelican case. It's basically mm-hmm. a very hard plastic suitcase that would house the headphones, um, the transmitters, um, basically your, your, your equipment setup, if you will, a ton of cables, phone lines. Um, you know, I, I joke, but like, Back in the day when we were doing radio broadcasts, a lot of these arenas uh, and basketball places and football stadiums, they were not wired correctly for radio stations. You literally had to plug into the back of a telephone and send it via a phone line. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes it sounded just like that. Um, and what's great about Hofstra Radio is that my junior year, uh, my, my, my actually my junior plus year, if you will, right? Because I got there in the fall of 92. And then by 93, 94, the first big trip we had for Hofstra Radio that I can recall, and I'll never forget this, it was at the University of California, Santa Barbara. Mm-hmm. We had a basketball tournament early in the year, and I had a conflict with TV, and I really wanted to go. And one of my professors said, no, you can't go. And I said, yes, but this is what I'm going to school for. This is the whole point. Now, I'm not going to lie to you. It was California, and I wanted to go. <laughs> um, but I ended up going to the dean at the time and, and, and asking, you know, asking for his guidance on this. And he said, yeah, I'm going to let you go. I'm going to override this. So we got to go to California and that was one of the coolest experiences. Um, it was us, Monmouth, UCAL, Santa Barbara, and Old Dominion playing out there in Santa Barbara at the Thunderdome. Um, and that was a really neat experience to travel with Hofstra Radio and travel with the team and go out there. And subsequently, we also went and we played at Notre Dame that year. Uh, we played at Chicago State that year. So we got to travel quite a bit with the radio station. And that was some really cool experiences in that spring. And part of that again is is dragging all that equipment and setting it up, and suddenly you're you know you're a road engineer. Yeah, you had to be a jack of all trades. You had to be a broadcaster, a road engineer, a PR person, right? Because you want to promote yourself, putting the Hofstra banner out. And it was nice because when you went on the road, sometimes some of these schools that we played at, they didn't have a radio station. They didn't have the ability to hear their team being broadcast over the airwaves and follow the game like our, like our students could. So I can remember clearly being at Bucknell, and that was a situation where we actually had several of the fans from Bucknell gathering below us in the stands, just just outside the press box, because they wanted to hear us call the game while they're watching it. It wasn't televised. We were the only radio station there, um, and that was a pretty cool treat for them. But we found out that that was the situation in a couple of areas. We played on the road uh, my senior year at Butler University in Indianapolis. Same thing. We had about 25 people right outside our booth. And they're hanging on every word while they're watching the game. And they said, this is really cool. You guys are a college radio station and you get to do this? I said, yeah, we do it all the time. They said, why don't we have that? I'm like, I don't know, man. Talk to your dean. Talk to your president. Um, But it it was a really cool feeling. Hmm. 
So you've mentioned John Lane a few times and Jay Brayman and Sue Zizza. Who are some other people who were helpful in getting you settled at the station? Uh, Jeff Foss, really good guy. Um, very nice. We would always uh, joke around and kid around and he would always, I think he had this um, this show called, was it P5? Yep. Post-pop progressive punk party, I think. Um, yeah, he was he was a trip. Jeff was funny. But he would he would give me some pointers on how to come in and out of breaks, what to say, what not to say, how much is too much, slow down, let the music breathe a little bit, learn the out cue, learn how to time it. Um, he was he was great in that respect. Um, mm. Jeff Foss was a great guy. Um, I'm trying to think what else. John Lane was another one. Dave Koenig was very helpful in that, and he's very instrumental. Dave was the first guy that I saw in the new building that really understood the board really well. He had a very uh, positive command of it. He knew how to fade in and fade out and control everyone's mics and really be a, uh, an announcer slash conductor. That was the first time I've seen someone play at that level, if you will. So hmm. he was really instrumental in that and me just watching and trying to learn from a guy like Dave. Hmm. When do you think you felt comfortable at the station? It seems like you jumped right in that first <laughs> trip to Philly, but when, when did you think like, okay, I can do this. I want to be here. This is, this is where I'm going to be. The, the, the defining moment for me uh, came in the form of my senior semester, if you will, because I graduated in December of 94. So that fall was homecoming and we were playing home against UNH and we had had several WRHU alumni come back. And one of the guys that came back was Tony Sibilla. Uh, mm-hmm. Tony was living in Chicago at the time. And what's ironic about that is that when we played out at Chicago State and played out in Notre Dame, I think, earlier that year during the basketball season. So this would have been the spring of 1994. We actually stayed with Tony at his house, which was cool, or his apartment. Um, And we got to hang out and I got to learn more about him and hear stories about what he used to do and so forth. So when he came back for homecoming that fall, I think we had Tony Sibilla. We may have had Todd Ant in the booth as well. And I got to interview both those guys at halftime. And that was the first time that I can honestly say that I felt very comfortable on the mic with these guys and it was probably because those guys are so good, they made it easy for me, right? It was just it was just a conversation we were having on the air. But that was the first aha moment that I really felt like, this is really cool. I really like what I'm doing. I can, I can do this. I want to do this. Um, and that was a really special time for me. Hmm. That's a great moment. And those are, those are two uh, both uh, great members of the Hofstra Radio community and just genuinely really good guys. Oh, they're fantastic. Yes, absolutely. So we've been looking back through the lens of hindsight and and so on and so forth, and we're talking about getting started at the station. But this is a hard thing to do, but can you put yourself back in your shoes at, let's say, 20 years old or so as a transfer student new on campus? What did you think WRHU would mean to you at that time? You know, I, I, that's a great question. I don't really know if I thought that deeply at the time. I just knew that I was enjoying the moment and the experiences of what I got to do. It wasn't obviously until you graduate and you move on and you see other things that you get to look back and think, oh, this is really cool, or I wish I'd done this differently. Or um, So for me, I look at WRHU as one of the many launching off points of my career and what I got to do. Um, I think a career is never based in a foundation in one area. You're going to draw upon several different areas, but it was certainly one of the cornerstones of my career in getting my confidence, getting my timing down, getting comfortable with myself, getting comfortable hearing my own voice, um, and just the actual repetition of doing it. It went from being, for me, WRHU went from being a hobby to being a passion 
to being a necessity, if you will. Um, by the time I was ready to graduate in December of 94, I was at the radio station almost every day, either cutting a promo or meeting with the younger kids and trying to groom them and get them ready, doing schedules, whatnot. To me, it just became you know, part of your daily activity, if you will. So when I look back on that, that's how I look at it and saying, wow, this is something that I thought was really cool, maybe a little bit even out of reach, wasn't even sure if I could do this. Um, and then to be welcomed into that family and allowed to participate and take chances and do things and get involved, it, it made a huge difference. John, thank you so much for taking the time and sharing your stories. This was a lot of fun and uh, let's do it again sometime. You bet.